Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Blacklist, where I discuss the lives and legacies of Black Hollywood. I know it hasn't been too long since the last episode of our first season, which is available in its entirety on SoundCloud and iTunes, but I felt inspired and compelled to come back with a smaller mini-season while I'm in the middle of preparing for the next full season, which will be back late this year. But while I was preparing that season... And while I was writing the last season, one of the things I enjoyed the most, aside from discovering more and more about the lives of Black artists that I admire, was the films. I love talking about films. And more than that, I love talking about Black films. I love talking about Black films that many people probably haven't, but definitely should see. So this mini-season, which we're about halfway through. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do. I'm talking about six Black films that I've selected at complete random that I enjoy, hate, secretly enjoy, and love. This week, I dive into the Song of Freedom. Not our first dip in the Paul Robeson pond, and certainly not our last. 1936's Song of Freedom is actually a British film. It comes from J. Elder Wills and the Hammer Film Productions Production Company, who became very famous for their horror films Dracula and Frankenstein. But it stars Paul Robeson as Johnny Zynga and Elizabeth Welch as Ruth Zynga. But if you remember back to our second episode, the role of Ruth was actually supposed to be played by Anina Mae McKinney. But she was said to be too immature for a role of this caliber, whatever that means. So I went to Elizabeth Welsh. Now, this film could be analyzed to death, and I could spend hours discussing its elements, but I'll just say that after you listen to this, you should find some time to watch it on your own. It's both current and light years ahead of its time, and still today, very topical. So... The film opens with a group of shirtless black people in Africa. This place has not yet attracted the slave trade. The year is 1700. Kasinga is the name of the island. And it's ruled over by a tyrant queen, Zynga, who has the most maniacal bad bitch laugh you've ever heard. The entire village has gathered to do a ritual sacrifice when a village woman tries to intervene and beg for the queen's mercy which the queen does not grant. So this woman is chased off by the queen's guards when she and a man run all over the island to escape the guards who are chasing them with spears. So the couple hop on a boat and flee the island. They stumble onto an island with white people and a white man who speaks English discovers that this man is Queen Zynga's son. And for some reason, he wants to go with the white people to Europe. Everyone around him laughs at this idea, but they do eventually grant him his wish. Now we get shots of African people in chains, sweating, sleeping, standing, and the couple looks frightened by these black people as these two are the only ones who are not in chains. Many people die, they are whipped, colonized, westernized, tortured as the years go by and by and by. And now it's almost a hundred years later. And there's a scene of shackles being thrown down into a pile, of course to symbolize the end of slavery. Now we finally meet Paul Robeson's character, Johnny Zynga, who is working in a storage facility near a steamboat of some sort, a favorite of Paul Robeson's characters. And as the workday winds down, he starts to sing about freedom, but only the one verse he can remember from his childhood. Then we cut to some 
famous white people getting off a plane surrounded by reporters because you always got to have those. And this is when we are first introduced to the famous opera composer Gabriel Donizetti. Then we cut to Paul Robeson singing The Walls of Jericho, a song about freedom. Gabriel Donizetti, riding by in his luxury car, hears this voice. He is stunned. He knows that Johnny is exactly what he needs to complete his new opera and demands that he interview Johnny before it's too late. But he doesn't know anything about him other than that voice. And now we go back to Johnny and all of the other dock workers at the local bar where someone asks him what part of Africa he's from. And I roll my eyes intensely. And it is revealed that he lingers on this topic a lot. It troubles him that he doesn't know where he's from. So when he goes home to his wife, Ruth, he and Ruth talk about Africa in front of a poster of Africa. And he tells her that he desperately wants to go home to his people. He wants to feel like he belongs. He delivers a stunning monologue about feeling out of place in England. And Ruth says he'll never be satisfied. And then, for some completely misogynistic reason, she blames herself for his dissatisfaction. And he tells her that she means everything to him. To which she replies, not everything. Then he holds her in his big, strong arms and sings out of their kitchen window. His co-workers from the dock hear him singing about Africa from their windows and are captivated. He sings down the river of dreams. And we get to see beautiful shots of various neighbors attending to their very simple lives with contentment. While he yearns for a land far away that he has never been to. But the river of dreams captures the attention of his neighbors. And then one by one, their lights go out, signaling bedtime. Johnny, with his beautiful, deep bass baritone voice, literally sang them to sleep. Then we cut to Gabriel Donizetti's office, who contrastingly is incredibly frustrated that he hasn't found Johnny. And his pianist says, what's the matter? He's only a colored man. And Donizetti replies, only a colored man? What's the matter, the color of his skin, when he has color in his voice? He is desperate to find Johnny. So he sends the assistant and the pianist out to find Johnny. Then we fade to the bar where Johnny is trying to play a tune that he can't quite remember. And an onlooker says, that reminds me of Africa. Are you from Africa? Gabriel Donizetti is told that there's a sing-song happening at the local bar and that Johnny will surely be there. So they sprint to him and there's like a full band in this teeny tiny bar. And ooh, this one white woman is looking like she is ready to risk it all as John sings about the lonely road that he wants to come to an end as he goes tramping on, heading for he doesn't know where. As he sings... Donizetti walks in and sits directly in front of him. And the men at the bar have a cute little sing-song. And later, Gabriel tells John that working at the docks isn't worth it because his talent could make him a fortune. And Gabriel is just the person to help him. So a reluctant John and an eager Ruth, completely overdressed, clearly uncomfortable, go to Donizetti's hotel and hear him out. And the funny thing is, is Gabriel Donizetti isn't even dressed. Side note. Every employee in this hotel where Donizetti is staying is white, and it feels good to watch them open doors for John and Ruth. Donizetti gets so excited and starts directing John as soon as he enters the home, immediately correcting his technique, which John fights against at first. 
John, looking very stiff, standing there doing scales in a tux, receiving corrections on his singing from a small Italian man he doesn't even know. Then John says if they want him to sing, he has to be free. And he sheds all of his stuffy clothing and decides that this isn't for him. He can't sing the way that Gabriel wants him to. And he tries to leave, but then Gabriel convinces him that he would be able to travel the world, that Gabriel could make him rich, and that he could give John a career and he may even get him to Africa like he's always wanted. Ruth and Gabriel convince John to change his mind. Then we fade to a full hundred-piece orchestra and a montage of John traveling the world, singing, growing wealthier and more famous, his name rising and rising in the credits while he sings about the stepping stones that he wants to lead him to his home, his kingdom of dreams. And then we see him getting ready for the finale at one of his performances. And he is a black butler. And Ruth walks in dressed beautifully. They all congratulate him on his success, on the performance as he prepares for the finale where he plays a deposed emperor to a land of slaves. While on stage, he sings about the fact that he may be slain. So he kills himself instead, giving no one else the satisfaction. And at curtain call, there is a roarous applause. And he's supposed to make a speech, but he can't. He doesn't know what to say. So he sings the song he always sang, a song of freedom. See what I did there? And the crowd, completely clueless, eats this shit up. Backstage, he is greeted by a mob of fans in his private dressing room, and there's a man who introduces himself as an explorer who inquires about the song that he sang at Curtain and asks questions about his relationship to Africa. And John reveals that he was born in London, not in Africa, and that he got a necklace from his grandfather. And even though he knows nothing about it, he's always felt some connection to his homeland. And the explorer reveals that he sang the song of kingship in Kasenga, and that is where he comes from. The explorer reveals that witch doctors took over the island after Queen Zinga died, and now they are, and I quote, ignorant, savage, and uncivilized. Upon hearing this, John makes it his mission to save them. But first, he must prove that he is the rightful heir to the throne. So he and Ruth finally travel to Kasinga. He has made it to Africa. They are greeted by men beating huge drums on various inconvenient places all over the mountain, like on top of mountains and stuff. And I'm not making fun of tradition. I just think the imagery is very powerful and makes a statement about ritual and not abiding by Western tradition. But anyway, the news of John and Ruth's arrival gathers a crowd, but not in the way that John expected. The people are less impressed by this black man, his butler, and his wife, dressed head to toe in white linens, coming to this island unannounced. They literally look like colonizers. So John tells them that they are his people, and he shows them the disc that he carries around his neck at all times. The disc of the Kasinga people. The witch doctor says he thinks because he came dressed in the white man's clothes that he can be a king. He doesn't even speak the language. And Ruth tries to tell them that he has knowledge from the north and he can help end their drought. They laugh him out of the center of town. Completely dismayed, he and Ruth get settled into their quote, hut, unquote. And in a disgusted manner, John says to Ruth, this is the kingdom I've brought you to. Ruth says that he can change that over time. 
and he calls them primitive and says he'll change that once they accept him as king. So he goes off to try to convince them once more. This time he's taken off his overshirt and goes out to learn about the village and he goes into a hut for people for whom nothing can be done because the island has no way to help them. But he gets the medicine that he brought to cure these people, which Ndobu, the rich doctor and clearly the head nigger in charge, refuses to allow because these are the customs of their people. Then John says, I don't want to interfere with your customs, but then like a white person, he interferes anyway and gives the medicine to this man promising that it will cure him. It does not cure him. It kills him because his body was not prepared for Western medicine. And so with less than one day in Kasinga under his belt, John has already killed someone and feels completely hopeless and confused as to why Africa isn't the way he dreamt it his entire life. And is confused as to why his people aren't accepting of him as he had hoped they would be. This entire act of the film is such a classic example of Western exceptionalism, but also of the way that African you know, people are taught to view Africa. Instead of understanding that all countries have their flaws and all people lead differently, he looks at them as less than, as helpless. But this is a land that has survived long before he stepped foot on the island and one that will surely outlive him. Sure, it isn't perfect. And yes, they're going through a drought and have lots of sick people, but that isn't a fair lens to judge a country through no matter how small or poor it is. The Western way isn't always the best way. But it's difficult to convince anyone of that. So later on, John meets Mandingo, another witch doctor who explains that even though John is of their color, he is not one of them. He was not bred the way they were. And John tries to explain that he wants to bring the Western ways to save the island. He is literally trying to colonize the island. And Mandingo explains that while the witch doctors rule, there can be no king. Once John and Ruth retire to their hut, Ndobu holds a ritual telling people that they need to get rid of John because he is bad luck. And John literally runs into this ritual and kicks over the setup and stops it trying to take over the island. And they point out that the medicine killed the man he tried to save. And they ask if all John's magic ends in this manner. He promises them a lot of things like ending hunger, poisons, untimely death, but he couldn't even save one person. And then they ask if he can do all this magic, then can he bring rain? Because then they might listen to him as a king or whatever. Ruth then interrupts saying that he is the true king and has all of this knowledge and power and simply wants to help. But Ndobu doesn't care to listen to a woman, another huge problem in this film. And Ndobu tells John that he will show him the true magic later that night. And later that night, the men of the village are running through the forest with spears, screaming, shouting, because it is the night of the full moon. And they will ask the gods for rain. So John agrees to go as a respect to their customs, despite Ruth's concerns that it might not end well for him. And Monty, his butler, tried to give John a gun, which shows the true westernness in their hearts. But this ritual is amazing. The dancing, the chanting, the sculpted bodies of these villagers, the attention to detail is immaculate. And this is one of my favorite scenes in this entire film. Once the men arrive, Ndobu, tired of the bullshit, challenges John to sing the song of the kings that only a true king would know. 
and exactly what you think would happen, happens. Ruth is captured because women are strictly forbidden from the ceremony and they threaten her with weapons. As John tries to intervene, someone stabs him, rendering him unconscious. He wakes the next day after hearing Ruth singing the Sleepy River song from the prison across from him. Yes, they are both in prison at this point. And Mandingo informs John that because Ruth looked upon the ritual, that she must be killed. John begs and pleads for him to do something, but there's nothing to be done. They take Ruth to be killed in the same place Queen Zinga had that man killed at the beginning of the film. John just literally runs out of prison without a plan. So of course he is captured and they sit him down in the king's seat and say that because this woman broke an ancient law, that she must be killed. And so they ask him to act as king and sentence her to death. And just as she is about to be burned alive, he starts to sing the song of the king, the song that he always sang. And it finally makes sense in this moment. And Undobu is shook. So they release Ruth and he sings the song of the king so powerfully. Even the camera angles position him larger than life, just like I imagined kings in my childhood. The film ends with Gabriel Donizetti revealing that John works every season singing and sends all of his money to the island and then goes back when the season is over to rule over Kasinga. And that last shot of John is singing on the stage. He's singing the Lonely Road song, but in a much more upbeat tone because he's finally found his way home. This film is quite stunning, actually. And if the DP and production designer intended to make Africa look savage and undesirable, they failed. But if they wanted to show the Eastern culture, then they succeeded. Because in such a short amount of time, there's really a culture developed. And the attention to detail does not go unnoticed by the audience. Paul Robeson's performance is incredible, as usual. But the story is the most compelling reason to watch this film. This Western versus Eastern culture and the conversation around civility and finding a home, a, a true home, is something to marvel at. I am always surprised at the progressiveness of some of this era's films. I never expected a 1936 film industry to take this on. I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 necklaces of kingship because this film truly excited me. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blacklist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like this podcast on iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. I know it seems like such a small thing, but it does go a long way. And if you want to learn more about us, please like us on Facebook at The Black-List and follow us on Twitter at The Blacklist Pod. And also feel free to follow my personal Twitter at Mariah in Woods. All episodes of The Blacklist are written, narrated, edited, and produced by Mariah. Mariah Woods, me. Until next time.